0: From WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome! I'm Warren Odeschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. <laughs> Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Rhonda Gossin on September 14, 2020. Rhonda has for over 30 years been in the field of international development, humanitarian post-disaster recovery and reconstruction, and peace operations programming, primarily at the Canadian International Development Agency, United Nations Development Program, and the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. She's also worked on issues related to human security and conflict. We talk about her 30 years of work and the ups and downs of international aid for both development and disaster relief. I started the interview by asking Rhonda where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up.
1: Well, I was born in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which is Midwest of Canada, into a Baha'i family. My grandmother, my uncle, and my parents were all Baha'is in the 60s, there was sort of this groundswell of interest in social change and transformation of society. And so the writings and teachings of the Baha'i faith were very much um, a source of interest and and discussion. So my grandmother's place was actually a place for Baha'i firesides, which were usually evening discussions amongst a wide group of people. And we really had stimulating discussions. It was a wonderful community, actually. But of course, I was curious about the church in Sunday school as a kid, you know, because everybody around me was Christian. So I did try going to Sunday school, I tried church, but certainly found that actually our Baha'i events and discussions were a bit more stimulating than than the church was at the time. (laughs) So yeah, but there was also Indigenous and First Nations Baha'i communities around us that we were engaged with. And so we frequently attended powwows, for example, and training
0: institute. So when did you first become interested or how did you find yourself in the field of international relations?
1: I think the big milestone for me was um, a youth exchange program uh, that I participated in called Canada World Youth, which took me to India with a group of youth. Um, over a period of about a year, we spent half the time in India and half the time in Canada, sort of immersing ourselves in communities and you know local community development to really learn the cultural differences and the realities of communities in both countries. So I think it was that experience that really solidified for me the desire to work in international relations. I wanted to go into the Foreign Service. Actually, initially, I wanted to be a journalist, but ended up as an aid worker. So there we go.
0: So how is it that the aid worker won out over journalism?
1: <laughs> I guess it was just what happened, the opportunity to, to work overseas and then I came back and finished a degree in international relations at university, and uh, that just led me into working for the Canadian International Development Agency, which is the government's uh, foreign aid arm, so your comparison in the U.S. would be uh, USAID.
0: Can you spend a few minutes describing the type of work you did for both the Canadian International Development Agency and the UNHCR, as well as your current work with UNDP? I imagine you've seen innovative approaches during your work over those years.
1: Yeah, definitely, for sure. There's been a lot of innovation, a lot of failure too, but we learn from failure, so that's all been good. My work has really been in international development, which is really about poverty alleviation in in poorer regions of the world. I've worked mainly in Asia and Africa, and even working for CETA, they become diplomatic postings abroad was posted in the Philippines, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Ghana. Of course, I've worked in other countries as well. About 15 years ago, I started working more on humanitarian response and crisis. So sort of my work became more the intersection between socioeconomic development and humanitarian crisis response. I've worked on the two largest refugee crisis responses in the world, the Syrian refugee crisis, where I worked out of Lebanon a few times, and then More recently, the Rohingya crisis in Bangladesh, in Katsa's Bazaar, Bangladesh. I worked in the first eight months scale up of that emergency response. So I've also worked in Afghanistan where I managed Canada's aid program in Kandahar, which was also another eye-opening learning experience. But yeah, innovation. You know, the thing that struck me the most is, is the progress we've made on social protection within international development and crisis response and really protection for the most vulnerable uh, using sort of a cash transfer modality. And that's been a very interesting innovation, but also in refugee response. So the use of smart cards or MasterCards, sort of debit cards, which are uploaded monthly with cash to give to people for meeting their basic needs and food, education, and sometimes health, it's really had a tremendous positive impact on stemming a decline into extreme poverty, uh, and really keeping people from falling into destitution who are already vulnerable. You know, the cash transfer work has also been accompanied by a really interesting analytical process of targeting, which is really a way of prioritizing aid to the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable. In Pakistan, when I worked there, the government had started a program called the Benazir Income Support Program, which was targeted to women, uh, especially women-headed households in poor, very poor communities. And it was used during the flood emergency response because they had all the data on people who were very vulnerable, so they were able to use that mechanism to just infuse extra cash needed to people in a crisis. It's been very effective to facilitate also some self-reliance amongst vulnerable people and refugees. It respects people's dignity and their decision-making choices instead of just distributing goods, goods to them. And it's also a way of having a positive impact on the local economy because it's infusing cash. And it's become a less costly form of humanitarian assistance as well. It doesn't require the same massive logistical setup as a humanitarian operation. And since COVID, you know, we've really seen the conversation turning towards a universal basic income idea using a cash transfer modality as well, you know, UNDP has recently called for introduction of an immediate temporary basic income for the world's poorest. They've suggested repurposing a country's debt repayments for these kinds of emergency measures, which is interesting. I think we've seen you know social protection measures because of Covid looked at more closely by governments everywhere, you know, the need for social protection, for access to health care for all, you know, different ways. I really feel the humanitarian sector has kind of led the way on a lot of this.
0: So you said that, I guess it was sovereign debt could be redirected toward this concept of providing basic income. How would that work?
1: I think what UNDP is referring to is poor countries that have huge debt repayments owed to, let's say, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank or international banks, that those debt repayments would be temporarily used for emergency measures for social protection. So there'd be some kind of debt alleviation program on a temporary basis by which the, those governments would have cash to put into a, a basic income program. I mean, they're talking about this on a temporary basis. It's pretty hard on a longer-term basis. But they've done a paper on it. It's a policy paper available. We can set, put up the link to that if people are interested.
0: How has being a Baha'i influenced or helped you in the work that you're doing in this area?
1: I do touch on that a little but I feel that, especially in humanitarian work, the basic principles of humanitarian assistance, which are really, you know, life-saving, assisting the most vulnerable, ensuring that no one's left behind, that kind of thing just aligns so well with the high views on socioeconomic development and service and helping the most vulnerable and always being aware of that. But the concept of service is so much embedded in humanitarian assistance that it's aligned very, very closely with Baha'i concept of service.
0: And what is the Baha'i concept of service?
1: Well, that we all should be trying to be of service in our own lives and in any way we can, whatever small little way we can in our life to ensure the betterment of the world, betterment of our communities, just even the smallest acts of kindness or compassion really can can make a big difference.
0: So I'm speaking with Rhonda Gossen, who has for over 30 years been in the field of international development, humanitarian, post-disaster recovery and reconstruction, and peace operations programming, primarily at the Canadian International Development Agency, United Nations Development Program, which we've been referring to as UNDP, and the UN High Commissioner for uh, refugees. And she's also worked on issues related to human security and conflict. Now, you had just referred to the Wilmet Institute and EBBF organizations. I guess it's a two-part question. You presented a topic called How Humanitarian Organizations Navigate New Global Realities in 2020. Can you tell us about EBBF and Wilmette Institute, and can you explain what these new global realities that humanitarian organizations are facing in 2020?
1: Yeah, EBBF and Wilmette Institute partnered on a webinar series over the summer, which was quite successful, and, and I gave a presentation at one of their webinars. EBBF is a Baha'i-inspired nonprofit organization based in Europe. With a focus really on transforming business and companies for more meaningful and purposeful workplaces. So its name is Ethical People Building the Future. Uh, So it's really focused on the that link between business and ethics. It's a learning community, a wonderful network of people around the world. I really suggest people check out their website and see their different opportunities for engagement, but also their purpose and they promote seven core values, which really cross over into my work in international crisis response and socioeconomic development. So it's sort of a natural platform for me to engage in meaningful conversation with them. The Wilmette Institute is based in the US. Uh, it's an educational institution really focused on, against social change and the Baha'i approach to social transformation. It provides all kinds of innovative and transformative learning experiences it's also a very good resource for talks and courses it has a a website that's really informative as well so yeah the second large part of your question (laughs) was really about my talk for their Mm -hmm. webinar on global realities that humanitarian organizations are facing uh, in 2020 of course that's a big subject and i just touched on a few things that really i felt were were critical i mean people could do a phd on that subject But the pandemic has really become an overriding sort of crisis within a crisis for humanitarian organizations. It's really accelerated the need for reform, for for changes that have been being discussed for some time already, I think, especially given the, the high cost of humanitarian aid globally. For example, this year, the UN launched its largest appeal for humanitarian aid in its history, $36 billion for 63 countries. About 6.7 billion of that was for COVID, but this is just one year cost we're talking about. Now we're seeing larger, longer, and more costly humanitarian crises around the world, including more forced displacement, more refugees, migrants. And we're predicted to see more climate-related migrants and refugees in the future as well. Present, we have 70 million people worldwide displaced. But UNDP predicts that global human development is on on course to decline this year for the first time since that concept was even introduced. So it really shows the need to really tackle root causes of conflict, of poverty, of inequality, which are even more critical. I mean, we've known that for a long time. The question is, how are humanitarian organizations dealing with that issue? And, you know, they're not really mandated to tackle root causes and structural transformation. But in 2018, uh, the global... The Compact on Refugees was signed at the UN General Assembly, which which really called for greater international responsibility and burden-sharing for refugees. And it also committed to the concept of greater inclusion of refugees in a society, more self-reliance, the need to move people away from humanitarian aid dependency. Again, I think this stems from the the huge cost of, of humanitarian assistance and just the capacity to deal with it. The World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul in 2016 signed something called the Grand Bargain, which commits humanitarian organizations to getting more resources to local and national responders and bringing affected people into the decision-making process. Now, this links to a really important Baha'i principle in socioeconomic development and humanitarian assistance, which is that of universal participation in the betterment of society And, you know, Baha'is believe that aid should not just be a project which one group of people carries out on behalf of another. Although, yes, charity and emergency need do dictate this at some times, but it's not really an appropriate mode of response for a protracted situation, such as the Syrian refugee crisis, which is now entering its 10th year. Like many other crises, I mean, you know, more than 10 years. Afghanistan, we've been seeing a crisis for 20 years or 20 plus so I really think uh, the pandemic's forced a hard look at the humanitarian sector and how it operates, um, even in terms of deploying hundreds of international aid workers to crisis and the need to rely more on local actors and empowering local actors to take ownership of, of a response and become protagonists of recovery and, and seeing those affected also as protagonists of their own future. But it's uh, it's it's very challenging and um You know, Baha'is definitely do not see the world as divided into dichotomous groups of one group necessarily only helping the other. And we're sort of all in this together. And I think uh, COVID has really brought that home to us.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest obstacle is individual sovereign nations realizing that we're one human family. And whoever is ailing in one part of the world is our brother or sister that we can't just ignore
1: no absolutely but it's also not a question of just charity it's more realizing that people do have inherent resilience and do have inherent capacity and it's not you know external actors and external models being forced on on others it's also recognizing that they have the capacity to solve their own their own problems too
0: Right. And I think if only they had the opportunity, I mean, they can't really demonstrate their resilience unless they have a home to be in to be able to demonstrate that.
1: Absolutely. So that basic life-saving emergency assistance is absolutely critical. But when it gets into year 10, yeah. um, it, you know, it's, I mean, can we still continue providing, you know, emergency response mode? You know, we've got to look at linking to longer term structural solutions.
0: Right. Which in some ways requires nations to, or national governments to have a different paradigm shift in their view, don't you think, or their perspective?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think especially when it comes to refugees, because look at the current crisis in Lesbos, Greece. You know, we have this unsustainable, unserviced, unsafe camp of refugees in Greece that's just gone on fire. You know without trying to include people a little bit in the society giving them some opportunity to maybe work and become a bit more self-reliant just keeping people in camps is not really a solution
0: so i'm speaking with rhonda gosson who has for over 30 years been in the field of international development humanitarian post-disaster recovery and reconstruction and peace operations programming primarily at the Canadian International Development Agency, United Nations Development Program, and the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. And she's also worked on issues related to human security and conflict. And we'd just spoken about a presentation that she had made to both the Wilmette Institute and the and EBBF entitled, How Humanitarian Organizations Navigate New Global Realities in 2020. Now, you had made another presentation for EBBF on the topic, which is a long title, <laughs> <laughs> Developing Universal Protagonism and a Vision of Service in Your Workplace, Linking Business, International Development, and Human Rights. So what was the message behind this presentation?
1: Well, I think it really was twofold. First, that private sector business social and economic development and human rights are not at odds with each other second that a commitment to human rights principles for global prosperity and development can be applied in private companies for me it was really about the un sustainable development goals which is the global development agenda that has been universally agreed by 193 countries for to be reached by 2030 but how the Sustainable Development Goals apply to business as well. And the UN has established a global compact network for business to implement socially responsible agendas, focusing in three main areas that link to the goals, human rights, environment, and labor. And so that was an area where I felt I could bring my knowledge of the global development agenda into the world of private business interests uh, more in line with EBBF's focus. Interesting, Canada recently appointed a new position called an Ombudsman for Responsible Enterprise, which was to monitor human rights abuses of Canadian private sector companies abroad. So as a result, Canada really set a benchmark for corporate social responsibility. And I referred to that as well in in the presentation.
0: And how long is that Canadian Ombudsman? When was that formed?
1: Um, It's been almost two years, Mm -hmm. probably just under two years uh, it started. Mm -hmm.
0: Are you aware of any effects that it has had as a result of its formation?
1: At first, it's getting started. Um, I do know the person who was appointed. I think they've been looking at mining companies abroad and in Africa, in particular, a couple of cases. But um, it's a really good start. You know, it's initiated a good dialogue, no matter what. So,
0: now you're a regular contributor on some digital platforms, and I noticed your contribution on OpenCanada.org. First of all, what is OpenCanada.org?
1: It's an online digital platform on international affairs and Canadian foreign policy. It's a platform where, I guess, Canadian interests in international affairs are both discussed, criticized, um, articles are written. It's now been put under a leading Canadian think tank called the Canadian International Council. But it's a place where voices in Canada and elsewhere can be heard, They've also written articles on Iran, um, and they've actually written one at least, if not two, on the Baha'is in Iran, persecution facing the Baha'is in Iran. And there have been some Baha'i contributors to Open Canada as well. Dr. Payam Akhavan, the international human rights lawyer, is one of them. But I really hope to continue working with them under their new governance structure.
0: On there, I saw a post entitled The Changing Nature of UN Peace Operations back in 2017, So I know that's fairly a while ago, but I imagine things haven't changed that dramatically. What is the changing nature of UN peace operations and what is causing this?
1: You're right. I don't think peace operations have changed dramatically in the last three years. So it's probably still reasonably relevant. But the UN is a learning organization, believe it or not. And many lessons learned are often acted upon. In the case of peace operations, the whole area of sexual exploitation and abuse in peacekeeping operations has been really looked at carefully. It made a lot of progress in that area. But the article was really about what we talked about earlier, which I call in the article and which humanitarians also call the triple nexus and addressing root causes of conflict. Triple nexus being the links between peace building, aid and development And the need for all actors involved in a conflict crisis to ensure greater coherence between their operations. So in other words, moving from a narrowed, siloed kind of approach to a more integrated approach to peace and security, which recognizes the benefits of aid and development and peace building combined, you know, for one single focus, working towards what is called in the humanitarian sector as collective outcomes it's really a way of achieving greater efficiency, I guess, with limited resources as well. And peace operations are very costly. So it's another need to combine our focus in a a more single-fold purpose. I mean, recognizing that all contributors have their own skill set and are contributing something specific, but at least if you're working towards one common goal or collective outcome, it's more effective. But one of the main points emphasized by the UN secretary general these days is the renewed emphasis on conflict prevention which again comes around to the tackling of structural issues root causes and and addressing these fundamental issues of injustice and poverty and and inequality you know this is an area that the Baha'i faith also has quite a bit to say about I mean we're focused on the need for transformational change in our societies at an economic political and societal level so Efforts to accelerate transformative change are are really critical, even to stem things, you know, the illegal migration, such as what I just referred to uh, in Lesbos, Greece, for those who are desperate to cross the Mediterranean. Our new Baha'i International Development Organization, which was established a couple of years ago, I guess now, is also participating in this kind of public discourse and, you know, and the need for social and economic change really required at a structural level to solve the critical global problems that we're facing.
0: Now, you've contributed many articles on various platforms. Have you any plans to write a book?
1: <laughs> well, thanks for asking that question. Yes, I do have plans to write a couple of books, but I think plans are turning them into actions another thing, although I am trying to finish a book now on gender equality and violent extremism in Pakistan and Afghanistan, really looking at the link between increasing violent extremism and gender-based violence. So it's sort of based on my experience of working in Pakistan. I worked there three different times in my career using the lens of, of Canada's legacy of support to women's rights in that country over a few decades. It's been very interesting for me to see the really clear link between increasing gender-based violence and extremism, that's also been a bit of an eye-opener for me. But it's interspersed with my own stories from my time of living there and working there, in, in Pakistan in particular. But it's also it's set against the you know, the war on terror in Af- Afghanistan as well, which has had such an impact on, on the situation in Pakistan. But I was really interested in your interview with Augusto uh, Lopez-Claros on his book that he wrote with Bahia Nakiavani on equality for women, Prosperity for All. In your interview, he gave an example of Afghanistan and women in Afghanistan. And so I was really interested in that. And I've bought the book and really enjoyed it. So thanks for that interview, too. <laughs> oh,
0: Thank you, Rhonda. So all these things that you've done in the last 30 years, do you feel like humanity's sort of stuck where it is with the whole development and refugee work? Do you actually see the root causes actually being addressed?
1: You know, there's been a lot of failure in international development and foreign aid over the years and a lot of criticism about it. It's being criticized as a neo colonial, liberal approach that is Western dominated, you know, when in fact we need a universal, global view on it. But there's been also a lot of learning and a lot of progress. I think the awareness has increased a lot. Like, yes, we're not tackling structural issues or root causes of many problems, many global problems, but I think there's a greater awareness of the need to do so, and also what we might need to do to tackle some of these root causes. I mean, the political will to tackle them is another question. We see the inertia of the UN Security Council, we see the inertia and limitations of our politicians around the world, but the recognition and the greater awareness of people generally about what we need to do is certainly there and i think the learning that has happened is has really been tremendous i think that's why the baha'is also established an international development organization a couple of years ago because the baha'is said listen we feel we have something to offer in this dialogue in this public discourse on tackling transformative change root causes of problems And we're going to engage in the discussion and we're going to engage based on our experience within our own communities and the work that we do around the world and how we see the world as one and not divided into poor or rich countries or South or the North or, you know, we're just one world. You know, there's a lot of cause for hope. I mean, it's a very uncertain time. We're all frustrated with the limitations of sovereign nations and the political process. But there's tremendous things happening that, you know, they just don't hit the news, unfortunately.
0: (laughs) I'm just wondering if you have any insight on your observations of Baha'i communities that have inculcated the teachings of the Baha'i faith that have actually been able to address some of these issues that are being tackled elsewhere that may not have the benefit of the Baha'i teachings.
1: I think there's lots of examples around, some of them small, some of them larger. I mean, I'm fascinated myself with the Baha'i community in Congo, in the Democratic Republic of Congo these days, because Congo has had a long-standing crisis, multiple crises of different kinds. Right? There's Congolese refugees fleeing into Uganda and neighboring countries all the time. They've had Ebola, they have COVID, they have violence, a horrible war going on in the north. But meanwhile, we have one of the largest, most flourishing Baha'i communities in the world in the Congo at the moment. You know, the community development activity that's taking place there, the learning, the coming together for all kinds of community projects has been really fascinating. I mean, I'd like to look into it myself a little bit more because it's such a dichotomy in this situation where there's such poor governance and all of these problems, then you have this really flourishing Baha'i community. So something's working there. But there's lots of examples of some agricultural work that's been going on in Baha'i communities uh, in Africa, but also elsewhere. I think Haiti, there's been some really interesting work in India, lots of different parts of the world. There's a lot of learning about what communities can do themselves, you know, despite what's going on in the the broader governance structure of their countries.
0: Well, Rhonda, thank you so much for taking this time to talk about your work. Oh, it was great talking to you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rhonda Gossin, who for over 30 years has been in the field of international development, humanitarian post-disaster recovery and reconstruction and peace operations programming primarily at the institutions of the Canadian International Development Agency, the UN Development Program, and the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. She's also worked on issues related to human security and conflict. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org, or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
2: to understand But brains grow Spirits shrink We no longer want to have to think We'd rather fail the unknown but I had all I needed Pockets full of air My belly bulged Spirits starved. By year, my happiness was hard, but on my aging face, new lines were hard. for love to end the drought. And so he went to travel, to share and be refilled. As planes rise, cares descend, from squatting in the dwelling of a friend, the open wounds of lifetime start to mend. Fall to by an angel who lives on Diet Coke. Way out I'm in. He helps me get some sunlight on my skin. It melts away that shame called fear of sin. I start to seek out beauty in every living thing. Sparks tempt singe when thankful sipping turns to midnight binge falls and gets up so much real life
3: its kindling in is my To what pleaseth
4: thee
3: Thou art fair
5: No doubt, no doubt. No, 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 no doubt. Differentiated the many ways to raise it. Cause losing the way and make it only hurts when you wanna take it. I've been giving something I should hold sacred. And if I don't take it, then this opportunity goes wasted. It's so basic. The meaning is made with a gesture. Invaded from the west and demonstrated with aggression. Feel the trace of the weapon, it reiterates a message. A little bit of effort further outline the session. It's now time to let it begin. Headed to the wind. The second I stand, less of a plan. It don't matter though. In that direction. Direction lies the answer, so you have to go. If for protection's sake, you never take the path and hold. Let the method make you lesson and then you'll be the last. You know, some of us have nothing but a word, will make us have it all. Pass it all. Time to focus now, that's what we spoke about. scoping out the holes on now. No doubt. No doubt. Time to mellow out, mellow out. Dark space, I wavered in, vacillating half a day, wasted asking favor, a favor of validation. I played the bass, nature ate the arms in my low end, chrome plated and shown places they afraid to go in. 21st century fox rocking the lambs, water, song channel, the palm planted on the handle. The panel host supposedly channeled the Holy Ghost. I'm down with you, staying close to get your crown roast. You hurt, sir, prefer a touch, a swerve, the avert. I learned respect come first and the chat come third. Now, what's the worth of a bush full of birds to the one you done snap? when every last one come when a clap. It ain't with the thumb, but son, it's unpunished for that. We've seen it happen at the pinpoint, pushed in the map. Travel the globe around, loaded so I know what it's about. Though it's walk it turn the code as the valve. No doubt, no, no doubt. on to mellow out, wow, 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 wow. wow. Yeah, I burn a few waiting on my turn It's certitude searching for a heaven Ever since entering Gertrude with the pin the words to the dirge and dreamt of the Image of innocence intense. but forgive My indifference and something about I heard It before you all the same and I told her we never spoken so you must be mistaken I thought maybe she turned away for Modesty's sake yet as she wrapped us on My name alone the nape of her neck For pardon I pleaded evidently she and I Were friends with tense traps between this Apparition and the one end would have Been little more than a bench had I I mentioned. I'm a lad, feeling star creeping in. The act reciprocated when the weight stacked, felt like a paperback bag. Get away to kid make tracks. Afraid speaking speak your name, vaguely. I recall a being faced. Let me hold out. I'm off slower now, no doubt lost touch but never lost hope found direction and respect for the presence of crossroads guilt gone so will be the hill the house is built on matters not infinite my center swimming in the cimarron age they disintegrate all the weaker dust fold the touch wait until the wind pick up it's possibly be progeny in the gust blowing about when he shown pulling photos out no doubt
4: Sky for you, an endless sea for you and me. Set your heart free, hey, 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 are you happy? Let your mind wander, hey, little girl, are you happy? Set your heart free, hey, little boy, are you happy? A clear blue sky free. And let's see For you and me Set your heart free Heart be free, let your mind wander, let your heart wander. Free oh, Let your mind wander, let your heart be free.
6: of man in this day is to attain that share of the flood of grace which God poureth forth for him to attain that share of the flood of others might fail.